Well, as you can tell from the graphic up there, we're still, there's a little part of the bottom that's the series that we're in. And the, the, when this comes in, I've shared this for a number of weeks now, but it comes from a time when my wife and I were on vacation in Maine this summer and sitting on a front porch just reading my Bible and meditating and sipping a nice cup of coffee, and, which was anointed, by the way. <laughs> and it was, um, and I felt God speak to me and say that, talking to me, first of, first of all, and, and he said, you're at a crossroads. And he said, the church is at a crossroads. A crossroads is a place where you have a, it's like a fork in the road, where you have a choice to make, which road you're going to go down. And that's a choice we have to make. He presents the roads to us. He'll tell us where the roads lead and what's involved. But we still have a free will to make the choice of which road we're going to go down. And I said, well, what is the choice? And he said, the choice is whether you're going to be the church or you're going to have church. And I knew immediately what he meant by that. But in case you don't or we need to be reminded of it, it kind of goes back to this. Back in the, in the 80s and the 90s when the charismatic renewal was, was in full force in the 80s and late 70s and then was beginning to wind down in the 90s, there were wonderful times in, in the spirit. And with the small church that we had before, we had some amazing services, amazing times where amazing things happened. And very often the comment people would make after that was, boy, we had church today. Or, or, you know, it was, we had a great time today. And that's wonderful. But here's the problem. Jesus didn't put us here to have church. We can do that to be refreshed. But we walk back out there into our families. We walk back out there into our jobs, our communities. We walk out into a dying world. And we've had a great time in here, but we weren't changed. And, and if we're not changed, then we can't bring that change into the world. And that's what the church is here to do. So the choice we have to make is, are we going to continue to have church? Which, and the real essence of that is the motive for what we come to do and the motive for what we, we leave with is what we get out of it. But that's not what we're here for what we get out of it. We're here to grow and become who Jesus has made us to be. To become who He's saved us to be. To become what we're needed to be. And we've looked in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus said, told His disciples, He said, you are to wait in Jerusalem. Now these are men that had been with Jesus for three and a half years. They'd seen Him do all kinds of miracles. He'd done miracles through them. They'd seen even one of their brothers, Peter, walk on water. They'd seen some amazing things. And as Jesus is preparing to leave them, we see that He told them, this is, I'm leaving you, and He said, and this is what your commission is to do. This is why you're here. And we looked at each of the four Gospels because there's a different aspect of that. In Matthew, he says, you're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you to do. In Mark, he says, you're to go into all the nations and preach the Gospel, proclaim the good news. And then we saw in Luke, he said that you're to go teach repentance. We don't hear much of that, but we'll hear a little bit of that today. And then in John, this is where we focused on, Jesus said, the works that I've done shall you do also and greater works than you do. And we went and looked at what some of those works were. They were tangible works. They were people saved. They were people changed. They were people delivered from the bondage that Satan had brought into their lives, whether it was sickness and disease or some kind of oppression or some kinds of emotional thing. Whatever it was, Jesus came to deliver us and to set us free. 1 John chapter 3, the last half of verse 8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the evil one. And there's a world out there that's in the grasp of the evil one. There are many Christians still today that are in the grasp of the evil one. And Jesus came to deliver us. But he's not going to come down here and walk up and down the aisles to do that the way he did when he walked on this earth. He's got to do it through his body, and we are the body of Christ. So therefore, Jesus told his disciples, with all this background, with having been given the commission, he says, you still don't have what it takes. It's the disciples. He said, you must wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And that word power, there are two words power that are often used in the New Testament. One is the Greek word exousia, which basically means authority to do something. But the other word is dunamis, which means power or the ability of God. The explosive ability to produce effects and change. Just as that same power produced the universe when God said, let there be. That power ought to change lives. It ought to have set people free. It ought to produce results. And we're living in a world that needs to see results. They're confused. 
We spent time this, uh, uh, this summer and late this spring talking about the, what this world is like and their philosophies of the world and postmodernism and the tremendous confusion that our young people are exposed to, which is that there's no such thing as truth and there's no such thing as, uh, as, as right or wrong. There's no absolute values. There's no absolute truth. And without, without an absolute truth or absolute values, they're, they're, at, they're at the whim of the, of the, of the Antichrist to, to control them, and that's exactly what's happening. So what's the answer to that? The answer is not programs. The answer is the demonstration of God's presence. The, the, they're looking for something authentic. There's nothing more authentic than God. There's nothing more authentic than the presence of God, the power of God, than the, than the Spirit of God. And that's what's so desperately needed. But it's desperately needed in the church. There are groups of pastors out there now, and it's wonderful praying for revival. But revival's not for the world. Revival's for the church. It's for us to be revived, wakened up, strengthened again. And it's not going to happen just by great preaching. It's going to happen because we have to have a visitation. We have to have a visitation from God. And a visitation is just if I showed up at your house tomorrow and knocked on your door and said, I'd like to come and visit you, you'd know I was there. You'd go around and clean a bunch of stuff up, take some things off the wall, check your refrigerator to see if you had anything on there, make sure the TV was on the right channel. You'd make, because you... <laughs> Ooh, that'll preach. <laughs> Woo, that'll preach. <laughs> but you'd be changed because I came, not because I'm so great, but because of your respect for the position that I hold. You'd be changed. That's what we need. We need, the, we need God to show up and visit us. Well, He's not going to step off His throne in heaven and come down here. He's going to come by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw last week what Jesus, what they did. It says, he, 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 they, they, chapter 2 of, of Acts says, and they were all together of one accord. That's important. And while they were together of one accord, something happened. They waited in that room for 10 days. Something happened. Suddenly the Holy Spirit blew into the place and filled the place where they were. And there appeared on them as divided tongues of fire. It was the glory of God shone on them and around them. And it spilled out into the streets. And they began to speak with tongues, languages they never learned before. But those languages were understood by a crowd that gathered. They didn't send by billboards. They didn't put advertising out. The Spirit of God did the advertising. But they spilled out of where they were. They didn't stay there and have a good time together. They didn't stay there and say, Woo! Does this feel good? Oh, the goosebumps. Whoa, this is a Holy Ghost meeting. No, they could not contain it. You know the Holy Spirit's been here when we can't contain it. When people encountered Jesus, He would often tell them, don't go tell what I did. What happened? They rushed right out and immediately. They couldn't contain it. When you've had an encounter with God, you don't have to be told to go knock on doors. You don't have to be told to do things. You can't contain it. And that's what we need. That's what we need. And as a result, there was confusion and they began to wonder what to do. And Peter, the same guy that only 10 days before, 50 days before, had denied to three women that couldn't do anything to him, that even knew Christ. And one of them he cursed. This now man stands up with a boldness and tells him, goes through the scriptures and says, this man that you crucified was the Messiah. And you put him to death. And then you know the Spirit of God was present because the response of the people always tells you. It wasn't, wow, Peter, we've never heard you preach like that. Go, boy, go, word on, great. No, they said they were pierced to the heart and they said, what must we do? When the Spirit of God is operating, people don't look at their brother and sister and say, Oh boy, she needed that. <laughs> Am I glad you got her today? No. There's a breaking down inside of a repentance and it says, what must we do? And he says, you must repent, you must be converted, and you must, for the remission of your sins, 
and then this Holy Spirit will come upon you that's come upon us here. And then the result of that, and that's kind of where we ended up. Then what happens, we're not going to read it, but over in Acts chapter 4, what happens is Peter and John go into church. They're going to the synagogue at the hour of prayer. And as they're walking in there, there's a man there who's never walked before. He was born lame from his birth. He was born lame. And he's begging alms. And Peter, Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And then he didn't walk away and said, bless you, brother. I'll come back and see. He grabbed him by the hand and they yanked him up. Now, you better know God's there when you do that. That's not a bless me, go home and, you know, call me if you got something. Peter was expecting something to happen. There was a boldness. And the man jumped and leaped and it caused a great commotion and people gathered around and Peter says, wait a minute, don't, don't get away and make him a god. Don't you understand? It was not by our power, it was not by our piety, our holiness that make this man whole, but it was by faith in the name of Jesus. Well, it got him in trouble. Because now there's a commotion going on. He gets back to the Pharisees and they arrest them and they bring them in. And they don't know what to do with them because they can't deny that this man who has been lame from birth is now walking. They can't deny that something's happening. But on the other hand, they, they, they're losing control. That was the issue. They're losing control. So they don't know what to do with them. And they finally said, all right, here's what we're going to do. So they beat him a little bit. And they said, all right, you can go back to your group, but don't speak anything in that name again, which shows you where the issue is. Do anything you want, but don't do anything in that name of Jesus. Don't do that. I love Peter's response. P- Peter's, this is the man, this is the man who 50 days ago denied he was even know him. Now he's standing in trial before these of Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's saying, whether we should do what you want us to do, you decide. But I cannot, we cannot help speaking what we've seen and heard. Something's happened to us and we can't be quiet. I don't care what it's going to cost us. I don't care whether you think it's right or wrong. We can't be quiet because we have experienced something we can't be quiet about. That's what the church needs. That's what the church needs. That's what the church needs. All right, but what I want to talk about today is where does that leave us? Where are we? First thing we need to talk about is we go back to Acts 1 and we see what Jesus told His disciples to do. He told them to tarry. That's the old English word, wait. So they were to wait in Jerusalem. They were to wait in that room until they received power from on high. All right, Pastor, that sounds great. Let's just sit here today and wait. Let's just wait. Well, we don't need to wait because they waited and the Spirit came. Nowhere does it say He left. In the Old Testament, He would come upon different men and women for different purposes. He came upon Samson, and Samson performed his mighty acts. He came upon King Saul. We saw that a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. He came upon King Saul for a period of time. He came upon King David. He would come upon the prophets, and they'd prophesy, but he, but he wouldn't remain on them. He didn't come in them because they were, they were not qualified containers yet. But on the day of Pentecost, He came. So we don't have to tarry and wait for Him to come again. And some, some denominations, and you may have been raised in some of those traditions, they used to have tarrying services where you'd come and just wait and wait and wait and wait. That's good. It's good to learn to wait. It's good to learn to be quiet in church and wait and wait and wait. But He came. He's come. He's come. The question is, okay, if He's come, where does that leave us? Well, first of all, I want to address something. And this, you could take weeks to do this, and we don't have that time. There's a difference between being saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
when you're, you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. He comes and brings into you the presence of God. Ezekiel's prophecy said, talking about the new birth, God will reach into your heart, take out a stony heart. A heart of stone is a heart that's not compassionate, has no feeling, it's just hard towards God. And it will give you a new heart that's of flesh, that's sensitive, that's tender. And then he says beyond that, and I will put my spirit in you. It's the Spirit of God who brings into you this new, this new creation, this new being. He births in you the life of God, just, he conceived, just as He conceived in the Virgin Mary, the life of Christ. He does the same thing in you when you come to Christ. But just because you've received the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean you're filled up with Him. Just because you've received Him, doesn't mean you're filled up with Him. We don't have time again to go through the Scriptures, but in John chapter 4... Jesus talking to the woman at the well said, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. They're at a well. It's a very dry, arid place. And she's come because they're thirsty and they want physical water to satisfy their physical thirst. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you've got a thirst inside of you. That water can't satisfy. And if you knew who I was, you would ask of me and I would give you a fountain or a spring of water springing up in you to satisfy your need. That refers to the new birth. That refers to Christ coming in you, the Spirit coming in you to satisfy your need, your relationship with God. But then over in chapter 7, Jesus appears at the end of the great feast and He says to them, If any man thirst, let him come to me and I will give him rivers out of his belly out of his spirit shall flow rivers of living water. Where a, a river of living water, that may not come out the same way second service, rivers of living water is very different than a spring bubbling up inside of you. We have over on either side of the sanctuary out in the foyer those old bubblers that, that you know, bubble, and it just, you know, kind of, if you're not careful, it might scorch you in the face, but it comes bubbling out. But it can be bubbling over here, and you can be here and never know it. But if a river came through that back door, we'd know it. We'd be swept up at it. And some of these vi- visual things we've seen through the, these storms we've seen shows you where a river flows at banks, people know it's there. Right. If you've ever been anywhere near a great, a great waterfall like, like uh, Niagara Falls, y- you know it's there. So when, this is referring to the Spirit flowing out of us for ministry purposes, f- to fulfill the commissions that we were given to do. That's the power of the Spirit of God. So that's a second experience. It can happen right after you're saved, but it's a second experience, and many people get confused about that. Well, does that mean I don't have the Holy Spirit? No, you have it if you're a Christian. You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference between having Him and being filled up with Him to overflowing. And that requires your permission. That requires your permission, which is really what we're going to begin to talk about. And here's one of the distinctions, because I struggled with this when I was first saved, and I was, we were in a church uh, up outside of Boston, and, and when we first got saved, and uh, the first church, I don't want to go, I can't go through that story, it takes too long. But we were in this church, and it was a real church, I mean, born again, Bible-toting Christians, and it was a large church, and it's still there. And the problem was this, is that half of the people in the, in the church were spirit-filled and half didn't believe in being spirit-filled. Made an interesting job for the pastor. Uh, and, 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 and here's what I began to notice. Because people that aren't quote-unquote spirit-filled doesn't mean they're not saved, doesn't mean they love, don't love God. In fact, in many ways, people that I've known that aren't spirit-filled are doing more for the kingdom of God than people that are spirit-filled. Charismatics love to have church. <laughs> Evangelicals, which is typically what they're referred to, that don't believe in the, this extra experience, they don't think that's, that's, you don't need any extra, they generally are doing all the work. <laughs> they're doing all the work. And so I began to notice this. I began to observe people that, that, that did not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Love God with all their heart. Say that you're one of them. Love God. Love you. And I'm sure you love people and you love me. But I noticed this. They would deal with things simply through the mind. It was all based on the mind. I have a, a, some of my Bible software study things. Very brilliant men. Saved. Love God with all their heart. But everything's intellectual. 
is having to understand God because they, they're not alive, they're, they're alive unto God, but they don't have the spiritual sensitivity because basically they've said, I don't need that. I don't need that. The biggest change that took place in me when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit is suddenly spiritual things became more real to me, more real to me, more sensitive to me. So I don't want to have time to go through all of that. But just to make you sure, it makes you more aware of the spirit realm. And that's part of why he comes into us. Everybody okay? All right, good, good, okay. Now, so the first thing, the next thing I want you to see about this is that, that, that although you may, and I'm going to give you my testimony a little bit, although that, that being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event. You can, you can leak <laughs> and need to be refilled. In Acts chapter 4, we're not going to go there towards the end, what happens after Paul, Peter, and John are arrested, the church does an amazing thing. They actually gather together and start praying. They don't make placards and go outside the jail and protest, let, set Peter free, set John free, unfair to arrest the apostles. No, they went to talk to the one that could do something about it. They went and they prayed. But it's interesting, they didn't pray, and then when Peter and John were released, they were threatened. The church was threatened at that point. And, and they didn't panic and go home. They gathered together and prayed. But what they prayed for was boldness of the Holy Spirit. They didn't pray to be delivered. They didn't pray, oh, please don't let anybody harm us. They, they prayed so that they could finish what they were put there to do. They prayed that their threat would not keep them from fulfilling what they're called to do. It's amazing. I've heard prayer requests coming from Christians inside places like Iraq and, and Iran, where, where it's illegal to be a Christian, like in Iran, and they're persecuted. They preach the gospel literally at the fear of their death. And their prayers that they ask for are not that you would protect us and keep us. Their prayers are that these threats would not keep us from being bold to proclaim the gospel. That's being sold out. That's being sold out. And you can't get yourself there. This is what the Holy Spirit in us does. He changes us. He changes us. And so they prayed for boldness. And then what happened? These are the same, some of the same people that were there in Acts chapter 1, 2. And the place was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to shake. Imagine if this room began to shake. Not like in Mexico City, but this room began to shake by the power of God. The power of God shook the place where they were. Well, if it shook the place, it shook those in the place too. And they began to go out proclaiming the word with great boldness. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit's working in your life is boldness. Not your personal boldness, but His boldness. If you're a bold person in yourself, sometimes that can get in His way. It's when, and this is the whole point. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changes us. It brings a change about it brings a change about. In Acts chapter, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul's writing to the church that's saved, that's filled with the Spirit, and he says, Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with a different Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. But that word be filled means continually. Be being filled, some translations say. So it's a continual thing. So just because you had an experience 10 years ago, and spoke in tongues and you felt goosebumps doesn't mean you, we don't need to be refilled. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. When we were saved, I was saved in my living room. And I, was, uh, uh, I knew something happened inside of me. Uh, and I, I, I was in a bookstore. Because I worked in down, I was a lawyer in a large firm in downtown Boston. And it, one of my things I'd like to do after lunch just walk around and there was a Barnes and Noble there and I like books just rooting around in the history section then I was rooting around in the religious section and there was a there was a, a little book there called and I've forgotten the exact title but it was about have, do you, have you heard of the Holy Spirit and I looked at that book and said that's interesting and, uh, and I, you know never heard of that before so I went rooting around in the history section and there was a pile of books and there's the same book there have you heard of the Holy Spirit? I said, hmm, that's interesting. And then I went somewhere else and was looking at something else, and there was a pile of books there, and there's a book saying, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? The same book. And I'm saying, wow, what a coincidence. I, I, 
So I have whatever I'd bought, and I'm in the checkout line, and I'm, I'm looking down, and guess what's there? There's another pile of books. I was a little slow back then. And it's, have you heard it? And so I, I picked it up. This is the great man of faith I was. I looked at how much does this cost? And I think it was $2. I'm glad it wasn't 3 Because they'd, hey, for two bucks, what's the loss? And so I bought it. And I got home and I picked it up to read it. And it was by a Jesuit priest. And he talked about, I realized, I'd never, I was like those in Acts. Have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? I'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm sure I'd heard it at the end of prayers, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'd heard the doc, I'd sung the doxology in church. I just didn't know what it meant. But he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's a real person, and he, he really comes to live inside of you, and, and, and it's, it, it's opened my eyes. And then we became, the only thing going on where we were living that was anything Christian, real Christians, was a charismatic prayer group, a Catholic charismatic prayer group, and a friend of ours who was not Catholic either said, would you come with me? And I'm telling you, we got there and our eyes went like this. We saw things and heard things we've never seen before. And, 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 and then they invited us to take this course called Life in the Spirit. Hey, why not? We're learning. We're brand new. We're learning stuff. I had no idea what it was until I got into it and found out it was to lead you up to, having, to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we went through the court. Anybody ever take that course? Yeah, okay, some of you. All right, praise God. So, and I went, came to the end of it and then they had this service and it was a Mass and we were not Catholic. I'm not used to going to Mass but we went there. And you're sitting these, it was, a, it was a church that was in a round, so you had these sections of pews. And we're sitting there waiting for the priest to lay hands on us and have us baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm, I'm seeing people fall down. What's that? Because I'm a very much in control person. And I'm thinking, not me. First of all, my first concern is there a medical problem? How come nobody's calling 911? How come nobody's doing anything? And then I did notice they would get up and they seemed okay. They staggered a little bit. And then I'm noticing in the row, I'm thinking some people have fallen. It's like, but the guy sitting next to me was big. I mean, he was, looked like he would have been a football player. And I'm saying, I know he's not going down. Because if anybody... And he gets up there and the priest didn't even get his hand near him. And boom, he hit the deck and I'm almost out of there. I am almost out of there. I, if my wife had not been sitting there, I would have gone. And I'm standing up there going... And I'm just, oh, not me, not me, not me. And I didn't. Because God won't force himself on you. And I walked out of there as if nothing happened. It was, okay, that was neat. And then we met with some people that were friends of ours, some of the people that helped lead us to the Lord. We were meeting with them every week for a little Bible study, and, and they were spirit-filled, and they started talking to me about speaking in tongues. It's like, well, what's that? They began to teach me about the, from the Scriptures. And I've shared this story before, but, you know, so I, they would pray in tongues, and I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable and awkward, and what in the world is that? And it's like, but, but I began to say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. And I would go, ah, ah, a gag. It's like, ah, ah, ah. I was just gagging. I was trying harder. And the harder I tried, the more I gagged. And I finally just, no, forget it. And then they would try to help me. And some of you have been in services maybe where they would, you know, say, hold on, brother, and other things. Let loose, brother. They're all trying to help you do something you just can't do. You can't make it happen. And so, so I'll shorten the story, but after a while, I got so fr- this was over a matter of weeks, I got so frustrated. You know, my family was in bed one night, and I've been reading my Bible, and I finally said, God, I've I, I got I to I resolve this. Sometimes that's what God's waiting for you, for you to just draw and say, this has got to happen. I've got to know. I, I really have to know. I just, and I said, God, I, what's the problem here? And the Lord spoke to me and showed me what it was. He said, because you're a lawyer you have to be in control of what you say. And in order for you to have this happen, you have to be willing to surrender the control of your tongue to me. He said, what's happening is you're sensing words are coming up in you that you don't understand. And because they sound immature like a baby and don't fit the image you have of yourself, you're pushing them back down. I said, then what do I do? He said, how did you receive Jesus? 
Did you feel anything? Did you see anything? I said, no, I just received him by faith. He said, this is a gift I've given to you. It's received like every other gift. It's received by faith. I said, does that mean I'm already got... Yes, he said, you just need to act as if you already have this. And I opened my mouth and an hour and a half later, it's still flowing. And now I'm thinking, can I stop it? (laughs) But it says, and they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. I'm going to share a little more about that, but I wanted to share with you, I went through that experience. And I speak in tongues every day. I'll speak in tongues during the day. I'll speak in tongues. I speak in tongues because it makes me spiritually sensitive. It's a way of communing with God. But I'm sharing this with you, not because I'm going to lead you into that today. We're coming to that. But I began to realize as I read the Bible and read the book of Acts, that although I'm filled with the Spirit, although I've had that experience, although I'm more, much more spiritually sensitive than I ever was before I had that experience, although I speak in tongues more than y'all, as Paul would say, where's this power? Where's this power? Where's this power? Where's this power? And I'm sharing this testimony with you because many of you out there have been filled with the Spirit, just as I have. Many of you speak in tongues. There may be some of us out there, some of you out there, that you have not had that experience yet. You've not done that yet. And we will take care of that, maybe next week. But, but I want to I bring us all together because I don't see that power here. I don't see that power in my life. I don't see... You've got to ask yourself whether you see that power in your life. So what must we do? There's something still missing Paul says, and I've, you've heard me quote this so many times, but it's so clear to me. Paul says in second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. And Paul could have. He was highly educated. He was obviously very articulate. He wrote things, even Peter said, I can't understand sometimes. But he said, I didn't come to you relying on those things, but I came to you in the demonstration, that's something you can see, and the power of the Holy Spirit. When the power of the Holy Spirit is there, there's a weightiness to the words. The Spirit of God penetrates people's hearts and causes something to happen that doesn't happen just because information is going to their minds. We read a great example, Peter. He preached that sermon. The power of God was upon him. And people's response was, what must I do? I shared with you last week the testimony of, of, of the story of, of uh, Smith Wigglesworth walking down the aisle of a train. Didn't say a word. And a priest falls out behind him and says, man, what must I do to be saved? There's something in that man's life. It was the presence of Christ in his life that affected people. Charles Finney had that. I don't see it in my life yet. And you've got to ask your question, yourself the question. So the beginning is to recognize where we are. The beginning is to be honest about where we are because if we're pretending we're somewhere, then then we're having church. If we're pretending we're somewhere, we're having church. We're trying to impress God, impress ourselves, impress one another. First of all, you can't impress God. And if you impress yourself, you've got a very limited congregation. This is not about impressing anybody. To do that, we've got to take a look, honest look at where we are. What must we do? Well, we've got to accept where we are. And one of the verses that really strikes out to me is the beginning of Acts chapter 2, where it says they were all together, they were all together, of one accord. They weren't just sitting around chatting with one another. They didn't come to that place for what they were going to get out of it. They didn't come to that place because they enjoyed one another's company. I, I hope they did, but that's not why they came together. They came together because Jesus had told them, you don't have what you need. You've now got the responsibility, but I haven't given you the power yet. So they knew they needed something. Not only that, many of them had in their minds the memory. It was only 50 days earlier that they all deserted him. It was only 50 days ago that they, they, that they deserted him. They panicked. 
They all thought they were so bold. Peter's the one that spoke out and said, Lord, I'll die with you. They may all desert you, but I'll die with you. But I read to you last week, they all joined in with that same boldness. They were confident in their commitment to Him. They were confident in their love for Him. And they did love Him. They were committed to a point until they saw the ultimate cost. And then they panicked and ran away. And I believe that's where most of us are. We're here this morning. Most of you are here this morning because you love Him. You're committed to Him. You want to do what He's called us to do. And we sit in church with one another and we see testimonies like Todd White and all of those and we say, yes, oh, that's exciting. And then we walk out the door. And we go to the 7-Eleven or the whatever. And there's an opportunity there and we shrink back because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us. They have the memory of that. So they knew they had a need. Not only that, as we've shared so many times before, they were comfortable because they'd seen Him. He was with them. They could touch Him. And now they've seen Him die, buried, raised from the dead. That's great. He's still around us. And now He's risen up. And an angel says to them, don't keep looking up because the next time He comes back, it's for keeps. He's coming to take you back. So now they're on their own. So the point is, here they are. By the way, they're saved at this point because Jesus said in John's account, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they're born again. They're saved, but they're waiting for what He told them to wait for. They need, they know they need what He's told them to wait for. They don't understand it, but they recognize it. See, sometimes all it, you've got to, we've got to know what we need. Do you ever go through a busy day and you get to like two in the afternoon and your stomach's growling or grumbling or, or it's, 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 you know, and suddenly you realize, oh, I forgot to eat. I was so busy I forgot to eat. Your stomach's trying to tell you you need something. Some of your stomachs may be telling you that right now. <laughs> and when your body tells you you need something, your focus is, I got to get it. You have to understand it, especially like water. If you've gone without her for water for a while, you've been somewhere where there's no water to pry the water, and you're, you're desperate for water, you don't do it. Has this water been tested? Is this, is this Poland Springs, or is this Dasani? I, you know, I gotta, we've had some preachers come, but we don't, they don't come anymore. They've got to have just the right water type. I've known of some that wanted just the right temperature. I won't tell you what we... No, I don't want <laughs> But when you're really thirsty, you just know, you don't need to understand anything. I know what I need. And here's part of the problem. The church doesn't know what we need. We're comfortable. We come to a nice air-conditioned building or heated building in nice cars, some nicer than others, but we can still drive here. We've been in churches in other parts of the world where they'll walk three and four hours to get to church. And they'll make sure they're early because they can't get their seat if they're not there early. Because others have walked three or four hours to get to church. Christopher Alam was here last week. He showed us a testimony of a man whose wife was healed, but he carried her on his back for two miles to get her there. The first time he was here, he told a story of a young boy who's carried his sister on his back for like three or four miles to get her there. Not, not in the back seat of his car. And he had to walk carrying her. Because they recognized the need. We're comfortable. We're comfortable. We need the Holy Spirit to stir up our comfortableness and recognize we need things. So to do that, I want to just talk a little bit about some things. And this is what I was struggling with. I want to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. There has been in my heart for a while, it started earlier this year, but it's been growing in me lately, a sense of urgency. An urgency about eternity. We had a wonderful homegoing service on Friday. <clears throat> for Juanita McLean. It was a wonderful time. Because what she wanted was not a morning, she wanted a celebration. And that's what it was. 
It was a celebration because almost everybody there knew where she was. They knew where she was. Almost everybody there knew where they were, that they were going to see her again. It was a time of celebration for her life and a homegoing. A week ago, Friday, I got up and I had an urgency. I felt an urgency in me to go see her at the hospice center. And I told my wife and she said, yeah. And so we went to see her on Friday. Saturday morning, we're having breakfast with Christopher Lum and I get the message, she's gone home. That urgency, it's facing all of us. Eternity is facing all of us. And you may be ready, and I may be ready, but there are people around us that aren't ready. And the reason why I believe that, because most of us are really caring people, but the reason we're not moved more is eternity's not real to us. The fact this is going to happen. Either Jesus is coming back, in which He's going to take with Him those that are His, and everybody else is going to be left, or they're going to die and go step into eternity. We need God to give us that sense of urgency. Because the urgency gives us the sense of need, and the need was what they were together with of one accord. The one accord was they knew they needed something. They didn't understand it, but they knew they needed They knew they didn't have what it took. They knew they needed something. They'd seen their failure. And we've not really seen our failure. Oh yes, a number of you have been very good at reaching out to people, but, but as a whole we failed. We failed. This church is not growing in size. That, that bothers my heart. And I don't want a church that's growing by taking people that are mad at some other pastor and come here, because they'll end up mad at me. I want the church to grow by bringing the lost in, and harvest, bringing the harvest in. That's what we're here to do. And if it takes getting down to 12 people to do that, that's what we're going to do. Because that's why we're here. And you can be part of it or choose to not be part of it. And I know that's a bold statement, but this is what we're here to do. Paul wrote this letter to a church that gave him a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) The first letter he writes, 1 Corinthians, there there are all kinds of problems going on in the church. And it was very spiritual in the sense that the gifts, they they were having church. I mean, they were having church. There was prophecy, there was tongues being spoken, there were signs and wonders, there were all kinds of demonstrations taking place. They were having church. And Paul writes to them and says, I wish I could call you spiritual, but you're carnal. See, we think God looks at us by what's going on outwardly. Wow. I just prophesied over somebody today. I had a word for somebody today. And it feels good. But that doesn't say anything about your spirituality. There were divisions and fighting going on in the church. There were food fights at communion service. Not literally, they may have been, I don't know. They were fighting over the food at communion table. They had cliques. Oh, uh uh-oh. This group sat with this group and they wouldn't talk to this group sitting with this group. And they gossiped. And Paul says, you're just acting like the world. The world's not going to see any different. Oh, all the gifts of the spirits are great in here. But that's not going to impact the world because they're not going to see Jesus in you. They're not going to see Jesus in you. So he wrote a letter to correct those things. They wrote back and then he also told them to correct something <clears throat> he says, because there's sin in the church. You don't hear much of that from pastors anymore. He says, I've heard the rumor that one of your members is living with his f- stepmother. How come you're not dealing with that? Do I have to come and deal with it? He dealt with their lives. He dealt with people's immorality. Because it's the body of Christ. See, we want the Spirit to come, but remember His first name? He's the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. 
And you can't make yourself holy. He has to make you holy, but you've got to be willing to be made holy, which means we have to let go of some unholy attitudes, some unholy practices, some unholy... We have to be willing to let go of the unholiness. So Paul writes this because then they got mad at him and they said, well, who do you think you are? This is Paul that founded the church. Who do you think you are? We have these gifts operating more than you do. So Paul has to write another letter and takes them through some of the things he's been through and says, this is what I've gone through to birth this church. And he comes down to the end. And we're going to pick up here. Oh, Lord. Verse 1. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I've told you before and foretell as if I were present at the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I'm not going to spare since you seek proof of Christ in me. So they were challenging whether he was really saved. Paul! (laughs) This shows you when you get in your flesh what people are capable of doing. People that profess to be Christians. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though I was crucified in weakness, though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God towards you. This is what I want to get to. Examine yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Not whether you walk in faith. Whether you're in the faith. Whether you're saved. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? In other words... Check yourself. Is Christ really in you? Because if not, you're disqualified. So Paul's telling them, he he goes on in verse 6, I don't think I gave that to them, but I trust that you will know that we're not disqualified. So what Paul is doing is he's he's not questioning them. He said, you need to check yourself out. You're accusing me of not having Christ in me. He said, you need to check yourself out whether Christ is really in you. Now I want to get into something here that's kind of difficult, but I'm going to do it. Everybody say this, I love love Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) You thought I was going to say Pastor John. That'll come later. (laughs) Matthew 22. I was reading through this last week, and I'm telling you, this gripped me. We're talking about being ready. They were together of one accord. They had one purpose on coming together. They didn't just come and sit and say, Oh God, whatever you want to do, do it. They were focused. They wanted this. This is a parable he tells. And I've got to go through it fairly quickly, but it's so important. No, I don't want anybody leaving here condemned, but we need to check ourselves. Verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them, saying, again by parables, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And his servants, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. And again he sent out other servants, saying to them, Tell those who were invited, See, I prepared my dinner, my ox, my fattened calf. In other words, the meal's ready. Come on, guys, come to the wedding. Verse 5. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out armors to destroy the murderers and burn up their cities. Now, what that's referring to is Israel rejecting Christ and the prophets. So relax. Then he said to the servants, The wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go to the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. That's the Gentiles. So that those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. That's good news, isn't it? And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. 
<laughs> now, when I read that, that was right after the week I'd taken my tie off in church. <laughs> so I began to quake. Uh-oh, what's this telling me, God? And I'll tell you what it means. And he said them, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the friend was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And I said, God, what does this mean? What does this mean? This friend that came, he came. He came to the way, he responded to the invitation. He came. But he was cast out because he was not wearing the right clothes. This is not legalism. And I went to some, some, some study things, and all of a sudden I saw it. The wedding feast represents the church, the, the family of God. And I felt the Lord say to me, there are people in church that are not in the family. There are people in church because the, 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 the wedding dress is the righteousness of God. In, Ma- in, in Matthew 5 and, 6 and 7, 5 and 6, Jesus gives the Sermon of the Mount. And one of the verses in there where he's going through all the standards of the kingdom of heaven... He says, you must be holy as my Father is holy. That's the verse that brought me to my knees and to the Lord. Because I was a good person. I was a good sinner. I didn't mean I sinned well. I was just a good person that was a sinner. I was still just as rebellious as you were with all your rottenness and all your stuff, mess you were into. I was proud. Proud of who I'd made myself to be. Proud of myself and what I'd accomplished. And all that pride was rebellion against God. And when I saw this, because I thought compared to the rest of you, I was pretty good. But when I saw God's standard was, you've got to be perfect as He is. You've got to be as holy as He is. I got on my knees and said, God, I, I can't do that. And the words that literally came out of my mouth is, I need a Savior. And then I heard myself. Jesus, I need you. That's why you came. That's why you came. And the church has backed away from this standard. So the robe that the wedding clothes are the righteousness, the holiness of God. Which you, there, it's not a robe you can make for yourself. It's a robe that is only comes through Christ. It's what Paul's whole book of Romans is about. It's the righteousness of God that is given to us by faith in Christ. But here's what I began to see. You can come to church. You can sing. You can raise your hands. You can have tears coming down your cheeks. But if Christ has really come in you, there ought to be some change. There ought to be some change. There ought to be some... If Jesus is really in us, in Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking about the difference between those that are saved and those who are not saved. He says those that are saved, the Spirit of God is in them. That's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ is in them. Therefore, there ought to be some kind of change that's a little bit like Him. John Wesley, one of the great evangelists of the 18th century, one of his most famous sermons is entitled, Almost Saved. It's based on, I think it's Festus, when Paul preached to Festus. And and, and, and Festus says, Festus or the other one, says, you almost convinced me. And and, And Wesley says, there are people in church that mentally assent to the gospel. They agree with what's being preached. They agree with what's being said. They said, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. Yes, I believe there's a heaven and I believe there's a hell. Yes, I believe that with my mind. But that's not what the Bible says. It says if you believe with your heart that Jesus died for you. And if you confess with your mouth, with you declare and make a commitment that Jesus is Lord you shall be saved. I'm going over this because we need to make sure above all things that when that time comes, we're ready. And here's, here's what concerns me. Because I hear things going on in the church and outside of the church. And I hear people gossip. And I hear people talk about other people. And I wonder, if God is in you, how can you do that? Now understand this. We're all growing. I'm far from perfect. If you want sure, just ask that lady over there that's lived with me for 50 years. I am far from perfect. But that's my goal. Jesus' 
commandment is that we love one another even as He loved us and gave Himself for us. His commandment is that we pray for those who despitefully use us. His commandment is that we love our enemies because that's what He's done. And if Christ is really in me, there ought to be some inkling that I should do that. I understand struggling with it because we struggle with our flesh. They said this to me and it hurt so much, Pastor, but, I have, but at least understand I need to be trying to do that instead of it has no, it's not on the radar. My concern is I hear of so many Christians that walking in love is not even on the radar. And if you tell them about it, it's just dismissed casually. I have to question whether Christ is really in you. Now, I'm not suggesting we all go home and tear ourselves apart. Because I guarantee you, none of us are there yet. I'm certainly not. But if there isn't some fruit, some kind of change in, in, in being more like Christ... Because if he's in you, <laughs> my mother was a horticulturist. She knew the Latin name for everything. She could grow anything. I didn't get that gifting from her. Anita's father was like that. I can kill anything. <laughs> but lately I have found a little bit of that anointing because we've had some plants this year that, you know, we went away and they didn't get watered and the sun got on them and they were like this. And I wouldn't give up on them. One of them, it happened to twice. I'd take it and I did what my mother used to do. I'd stick it in a bucket of water and it gradually came back to life. And so just because, and there's one I was looking at yesterday, just because it would look dead doesn't mean there wasn't life in there. And now I'm beginning to see little blossoms come out it was amazing. It's, it's beginning to blossom again. So with some of you, you may not be seeing the blossoms yet, but there could be life in there. There could be life in there. But, but if, if, if your heart never gets pricked, if, if your heart never gets bothered by gossip or strife or envy or jealousy, it, it, I understand dealing with the flesh, but it never bothers you, you, you need to ask the question that Paul asked here. Is Christ really in me? And if He's not, there's a great solution. If you're in doubt, we're going to take care of that in just a couple of minutes. That's the most critical issue of your life. Don't leave it uncertain. I know He's in me. Not because I'm perfect. Because I know there have been times when people have said things about me and done certain things to me. And I know God's dealt with me and I've had to go back. One thing that I did something to somebody years ago, I hurt them indirectly. 30 years ago. Forgot all about it. And earlier this year, it began to bubble up in me. And I'm saying, God, you can't be asking me to find that person. Are you asking me to find that? It would be embarrassing to me to... I might stir it all up again and we don't want... I, I, I wouldn't want to stir it up for that person again. And the Lord says, leave that to me. You just obey me. And it took me two months to work it up. And finally I got in such agony. But see, I was in agony because the Spirit in me was convicting me. He was working on my heart. He was breaking down the barriers of myself that didn't want to be embarrassed, that didn't want to stir up old memories. He was breaking down those barriers in me, but I was, there was a struggle going on. If there's no struggle, I begin to wonder, have I become so hard-hearted? A year ago, I got into that place. When Lise Palau was here, I, says, I, I pulled him aside. I said, I don't know what to do. I said, I'm a pastor of a church and I feel so hard in here right now. And I don't know why. And I come through the treatments and things I was going through. And he just gave me a reassuring word. And all I did was get open with God. Just get honest with God. God, this is how I feel. Show me where I am. Help me. And God began to show me things to do. But at least I bothered me. It bothered me that my heart was hard. It bothered me. 
Even that's fruit. Evidence that he's in there. Evidence that he's in there. This is my commandment. That you love one another. This is how I'll know that you love me because you love one another. And that's in many cases the least priority on our radar. It's more about what did they do to me? What do I think of that? And basically, in God's kingdom, that doesn't amount to anything. I know this is a hard message this morning. But the last verse here in verse 14 is the chilling one. For many are called, but few are chosen. The invitation's out to everybody, but few are chosen. Jesus put it a, a different way earlier in Matthew. He said there are two roads, two ways you can live your life. There's one road that's wide, and it's very easy. It's all downhill, and it's easy because everybody's going with it. Your friends are going there. Families go in there. No opposition because everybody's going along and they're patting you on the back and saying, Wow, you're a great brother boy. I love you. It's good to see you. We're all going down this road. Remember, we're at a crossroads. And he said, There's another road. Problem with this one is very narrow. It's kind of hard to get into. And when you're in there, you can't take a lot of stuff with you. It's just you can get in there. You've got to let go of stuff. Hurts. Because hurts bloat us. Pride, it, it, it bloats us. In this way, it's only big enough for the real you to fit in. So you've got to let that stuff go. So it's hard. And because it's hard and it's uphill and there are obstacles and enemies to try to distract you, it's a, it's a real easy choice at the beginning. I'm going to take the easy way. Wow, everybody else is going. But here's the only problem with that it's where they lead. It's very important when you get on a road to know where you're going. Isn't it? You don't drive that way. Let's just, let's, used to be we took, this really dates me, Sunday afternoon drives. Nowhere we were going, just drove. But people are too busy nowadays. So you know where you're going. Right? I hope you know where you're going. <laughs> you know where you're going. So the reason you get on that road is because it's going to take you to Pawtucket or it's going to take you to Westerly it's going to take you you know, to Philadelphia or New York it's going to take you to where you want to go you can choose where you want to go but you can't choose the road because the road's going to take you where you want to go so if you want to go to New York I remember the other thing I was going to say and I won't go there because I'll lose you if you want to go to New York if you want to go to Boston you can't get on Route 6 going that way because that won't take you to Boston. If you destination's Boston, you've got to get on a road away that's going to take you to where you want to go. So you can choose the destination. You can't choose the road or path to get there. This road, the wide one, leads to destruction. Eternal destruction. Easy, popular, but it's where it's leading. This road is difficult. Anyone can come on this road, but it's narrow. You can't bring everything with you. You can't even bring your family with you. They can get on the road too, but they can't get on the road with you. You've got to be willing to let your family go to get on this road. But it leads everlasting life so in order to be ready in order to be together of one accord we have to come together for the same purpose we have to come together for the same need we all recognize we need this power from one high and we all have to be in the same family we all have to be in the same family let's pray Father, we've heard some very strong words today.
but your word should lead us to repentance. To examine ourselves and let you examine us. Not to go on a witch hunt and tear ourselves apart, but allow you to examine our heart for us. So that we are vessels prepared for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to fill this place. Because when He comes, He will also be the Spirit of fire. Because Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire will burn out every impurity and purify us. But we must be willing and we must ask. So prepare our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding as we take an accounting of ourselves that we would see the need that where we are is not enough. We're falling short. And just as those disciples in that early first day were together of one accord, help us to come together and recognize that we're complacent. We're content. We're enjoying having church, but we must become what you put us here to be. Father, this morning, strengthen every heart. Search every heart. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. In Jesus' name.